0: Welcome to the second Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, 2015, related to the FG Twitter debate on Tuesday, the 10th of February, 2015, entitled "Frontline Gastrointestinal Net, The Approach to Diagnosis and Initial Management." My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the training editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a Gastroenterology Registrar in London. And I'm delighted to introduce Professor Mark Pritchard. Professor and Head of the Department of Gastroenterology and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. Professor Pritchard studied medicine. and graduated from Manchester University in 1991. After junior hospital posts, he returned to Manchester to train in gastroenterology and performed research on the genetic regulation of apoptosis in the GI tract with Professor Hickman and Potten funded by both the Digestive Disorder Federation and the MRC Training Fellowships, leading to a PhD in 1999. In 2000, he moved to the University of Liverpool as a clinical lecturer to complete clinical training in gastroenterology. Following this, he was awarded an advanced fellowship for clinicians from the Wellcome Trust of Apoptosis in the Stomach. He has been awarded many prizes, including the Sir Francis Avery-Jones Research Medal, of the British Society of Gastroenterology in 2008. He was appointed a clinical senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool in 2006, professor in 2009, and head of department in 2010. He also heads up the integrated clinical academic training team in, in Liverpool. He is chair of the Gastroenterology Section Committee of the BSG, the book reviews editor of Gut*, and a member of the editorial boards of three other international GI journals. His main research focus is studying the, the factors which influence the pathogenesis of gastrointestinal cancers and neuroendocrine tumours, and he has published more than 75 papers on these topics. He is an honorary consultant gastroenterologist at Royal Liverpool University Hospital, where his main clinical role is managing patients with neuroendocrine tumours, especially those associated with hypergastronemia as part of the city's European Neuroendocrine Tumour Society Centre of Excellence. He recently led the first clinical trial of gastrin CCK2 receptor antagonists in patients with gastric nets. Professor Pritchard, thank you very much for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate, in which you included a number of slides. A summary of of the Twitter debate will be on the FG website, as well as these uh, slides been accompanying this podcast. During the Twitter debate, we focused on the initial approach to diagnosis of GI NETs and their management. So, Professor Pritchard, for those doctors listening to the podcast who may have missed the Twitter debate and also may not know much about GI NETs, can you briefly explain how common these tumors are and how, how, how patients typically present to gastroenterologists? and also what may make a gastroenterologist suspect a possible GI uh, neuroendocrine tumour.
1: Okay, well thank you Phil um, for inviting me to to do this podcast and thank you to all the people who contributed to the debate on Tuesday night. It was a very enjoyable experience and I think it stimulated quite a lot of interesting questions. Uh, so neuroendocrine tumours, or as they used to be called carcinoid tumours, are, are relatively rare in incidence. So the incidence overall is probably somewhere between about 2.5 and 5 per 100,000. But because these tumours have a much better prognosis than many other traditional sorts of cancers, the prevalence is much higher. So the prevalence is probably about 35 per 100,000. So The prevalence is probably higher than uh, esophageal cancer and gastric cancer, but the incidence obviously is much lower. So you're not going to see new patients that often as a general gastroenterologist, but you may well have patients that you follow up for many years. So they think these patients probably present to gastroenterologists in one of three ways. The first way is by detection at endoscopy, which may well be being performed for some other reason. So you can detect polyps in the stomach, particularly, and in the colon, which when you biopsy them or remove them, the histology will show them to be neuroendocrine tumors, and that's actually an increasing way of these tumors presenting. Um, The second, I suppose, would be uh, detection by some sort of imaging. So a patient having a CT scan for maybe another reason and being found to have an incidental pancreatic mass or maybe some liver metastases and uh, further evaluation and biopsy of these turns out to be a, a neuroendocrine tumor. Many patients with small bowel neuroendocrine tumors present with liver metastases and end up having a liver biopsy, and that shows that that's what they've got. And I suppose the third way, and probably the most difficult way uh, of diagnosing them, is when patients present with symptoms. So patients with small bowel neuroendocrine tumors, for example, can present with symptoms which are very similar to other much more common GI conditions. And if you look at Charities such as the Net Patient Foundation they suggest that in the case of small bowel neuroendocrine tumours there is often quite a long delay in diagnosis because their symptoms are being put down to something like IBS. So it's actually quite difficult to detect those patients who have have got uh, a small bowel neuroendocrine tumour in particular on the basis of symptoms which may just be something like diarrhoea and abdominal pain. So I think those are the three main ways that patients present. I think you've just got to be vigilant, be aware that neuroendocrine tumours can, can present in any of these ways and be prepared to take biopsies and do evaluations to look into this possibility.
0: Okay, well, thank you for that. That's a really nice overview. So with that in mind then, how would you advise a general gastroenterologist in a district general hospital about going and systematically investigating a possible neuroendocrine tumour Endoscopically, radiologically, and biochemically?
1: Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, I think let's deal with those three in turn. So, endoscopy is not complicated in these cases, you just need to do careful endoscopy. So, one of the main ways in which you will find these tumors is by endoscopy, particularly for for patients who've got anemia, because type 1 gastric neuroendocrine tumors occur in patients who've got autoimmune atrophic gastritis and pernicious anemia. So these often present as incidental polyps in the stomach. A few years ago, I was involved in publishing the BSG guidelines on the management of of gastric polyps. And the message that we said there was that don't ignore gastric polyps. If you find them, record their site, size, number and take photographs of them, and importantly, biopsy them to tell you what the cause of that polyp is. You can't really distinguish the type of gastric polyp accurately without biopsying it. In the case of gastric neuroendocrine tumors, it's also very helpful to take biopsies of the surrounding gastric corpus mucosa to make sure or to investigate whether there's any um, presence of atrophic gastritis. So I think in an endoscopy, there's nothing very complicated. It's just doing careful Uh, endoscopy, both in the upper and lower GI tract, and recording your findings. Particularly in the upper GI tract, I would counsel against trying to treat any polyps at the first endoscopy until you know exactly what you're dealing with. Some of the polyps don't need uh, polypectomy, others may do, but I would counsel against doing that initially and taking just simple biopsies to work out what's going on so that that can guide your future um, endoscopic approach. I think perhaps later on in this uh, podcast, we'll discuss things like EUS, but I won't uh, get into that now. In terms of a general district hospital gastroenterologist, it's just careful endoscopy, being aware that these types of tumour can exist and just evaluating mucosal lesions in the stomach, duodenum and colon, as you normally would. Moving on to radiology, the, the workhorse of radiology in this type of tumor as in most others is contrast enhanced ct scans uh, and anybody with a diagnosed net probably should be having a staging ct scan both chest and abdomen as well as pelvis really and that would be available in in all hospitals certainly within the uk the type of imaging that may not be available everywhere though is functional imaging so there are two main types of this scan available the slightly old-fashioned one is uh, octreotide scanning, somatostatin scintigraphy, and this is available in lots of hospitals uh, in the UK and Europe. More recently, there has been a development of this into a new PET scan, Gallium-68 DotaNoc or DotaToc PET scan, which is probably more sensitive for the presence of neuroendocrine tumors, but is not yet available uh, universally. It's only available in a few centers in the UK. Um, And it may well be that in a DGH, you would need to refer patients elsewhere for access to such scans. Uh, The third type of investigation that you need to do is biochemical investigations. And these can be helpful in determining the cause of neuroendocrine tumors, but also whether they're functional and secreting the peptides which can be responsible for some of the symptoms that they can cause. The main blood test that you need to do is a fasting gut hormone profile, and this measures the level of certain hormones like somatostatin and gastrin, and also the concentrations of chromogranin A and B. This test is done in two places in the UK. It's done in in London and at the Hammersmith Hospital, and it's also done in Belfast, and each DGH in the UK probably has an arrangement with one or other of those centres to send the specimens along. Uh, This specimen has to be taken fasting because food can influence the concentration of some of these hormones in the blood and it has to be processed quickly and sent on ice to the lab. So it is a somewhat uh, tricky test to do uh, and the phlebotomy services in each hospital need to be aware of the needs uh, for the processing of those tests. The other biochemical test that is sometimes useful and which most gastroenterologists seem to know about and do very uh, commonly is the 5 hiaa urine test. So this is a 24-hour urine collection that's analyzed for the presence of 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid. There are certain dietary components that, which can influence the concentration uh, of 5-HIA in the urine. And with it being a 24-hour urine collection in an acidified bottle, it's somewhat tricky to do. It's really only helpful in patients with symptoms suggestive of carcinoid syndrome or if you're trying to evaluate a metastatic small bowel neuroendocrine tumour. It probably has little role in other types of neuroendocrine tumour, particularly those that arise in the stomach or the colon or even the pancreas. So it's a test which is probably misused in some ways in that it's probably done unnecessarily in some patients. Uh, And when it is done, it can be a bit fiddly. Some centers, but not many in the UK, also do plasma 5 hiaa tests. uh, But as I say, they're not widely available. And they provide much the same information as the 24-hour urine test. So I think that's a, a reasonable summary of the endoscopic, radiological, and biochemical tests that one should consider if investigating a patient with a potential neuroendocrine tumor.
0: That's no, it's a fantastic summary, uh, Professor. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and I, and it's, uh, it was very interesting hearing you talk about the radionucleotide scans because that that actually was mentioned in the Twitter debate about getting access. But another thing that came up, was, which um, is quite interesting as well, is that if you do tests such as a fasting serum gastrin level or a chromogranin A level, for example, how do you interpret these tests and, um, and how do they influence, you know, what, what you do next?
1: Yeah, well, this can be quite difficult because they're not specific for neuroendocrine tumors. So if we deal with the two of them in terms so chromogranin A is a very, very helpful test, probably the most helpful biomarker of neuroendocrine tumors uh, and the Magnitude of elevation of the test does correlate with tumour burden in many settings, and it can be helpful for assessing response to therapy. So it's a very useful test to do. However, it's not specific for neuroendocrine tumours. It can be raised in other conditions. So non-specific things like renal impairment, liver impairment, the chromogranin A level can be raised, uh, and it can also be raised in inflammatory bowel disease. The magnitude of elevation is not usually to the same extent that you would see suddenly in the metastatic neuroendocrine tumor, but it can be elevated in each of those conditions. Arguably, the most um, difficult thing sometimes to work out is uh, patients who are on proton pump inhibitors because the achlorhydria or hypochlorhydria that they induce in the stomach causes causes an increase in the number of uh, enterochromafin-like cells in the stomach, which secrete chromogranin A. So you can get a non-specific increase in chromogranin A in some patients who are on proton pump inhibitors. Even more confusingly, that is dependent on the exact antibody that's used in the ELISA test or radioimmunoassay that's used for chromogranin A. So PPI use may be a factor in some hospitals, but not in others. Um, so it's a little bit complicated to work out. So that was chromogranin A. And I was just going to mention serum gastrin tests as well because they can sometimes be confusing in that proton pump inhibitor use, as I've just mentioned, but also helicobacter pylori infection, which are much more common than than any sort of neuroendocrine tumor, can both cause small elevations of fasting serum gastrin concentrations. And so it can be quite tricky to work out the, the cause of hypergastrinemia. I put a slide on the Twitter debate which shows how I approach the investigation of hypergastronemia and the most important thing that you need to know in association with a serum gastrin concentration is what is the pH of the gastric juice. So is the gastric juice acidic or is it not? Uh, and associated with that, you can take biopsies of the stomach to look for evidence of atrophic gastritis, but you can only interpret gastrin concentrations in the serum in conjunction with knowledge about the pH of the gastric juice. Now, in the UK, we can no longer do um, acid output studies very commonly, but it's actually quite easy to measure the pH of gastric juice. You just simply um, have an empty channel on your endoscope and then just suck out some juice, as you would normally do into a polyp trap or something of that type, and test the pH with some universal indicator paper, which most hospitals would have around for Assessing whether nasogastric tubes have gone down into the stomach, so it's the same principle uh, with aspirating gastric juice just to check its pH, and you can do that at the time of endoscopy. And knowing the pH of the gastric juice as well as the serum gastrin concentration allows you to then have an approach to its investigation. It can be quite complicated, and you may need to even involve things like secretin stimulation tests, but that's probably. Something I won't go into in this podcast, it's quite a specialized thing, and you might need to refer the patient to a colleague to to do that because it's not universally available. But I think the simple take-home message is don't assume that a raised serum gastrin is due to something like Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Try to work out what is the cause of it, uh, and aspiration of gastric juice and testing its pH is a very helpful adjunct to doing that.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that. That was a great, a great summary because I know that those tests particularly cause a lot of anxiety with gastroenterologists. So leads on quite nicely actually into, so you've, you think you've diagnosed a uh, gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumor. How do you then go about treating them?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that if you have diagnosed a gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumor, you probably shouldn't be just tackling that patient alone. There are several specialists who have uh, an input into the management of these conditions. And I think it's crucial that these patients should be managed by a neuroendocrine tumor multidisciplinary team. These are available in all uh, regions in the UK. They're not necessarily available at all district general hospitals, but on a regional basis, they are available. And I think anybody in whom you diagnose a, a neuroendocrine tumor should be referred to one of those MDTs, because there are lots of treatment options Patients often don't just get one treatment, particularly patients with metastatic disease. They may well get sequential modes of therapy, all of which will have some effect. Uh, And so the management is not necessarily always straightforward. I suppose if we're thinking about management within an MDT setting, uh, the first thing to consider is, does the patient need treatment at all? So some of these tumours are associated with an excellent prognosis, have no effect on uh, survival, and may well not need any treatment at all and the example that I give of this is small type 1 gastric neuroendocrine tumors in a patient with pernicious anemia so if there are polyps in the stomach which are substantially less than a centimeter in size in a patient with autoimmune atrophic gastritis then they probably don't need any treatment they probably should have surveillance to make sure that these polyps are not increasing in size and needing treatment, but small, low-grade type 1 gastric neuroendocrine tumors may not need treatment at all. Moving on from that, there are certain neuroendocrine tumors, if they are confined to a particular site, which you can remove either surgically or endoscopically with a view to cure. So, A colonic polyp, for example, may well be suitable for an endoscopic mucosal resection, and that may be a curative procedure. So if you show no evidence of more distant metastases, it may well be that either endoscopy or surgical resection is appropriate with a view to cure. So that should be the next consideration. However, lots of patients with neuroendocrine tumor present with metastases at the time of diagnosis. And so surgical cure... It's not possible in many patients. And in those, I think you then need to consider what the um, systemic treatment options are, and they can be several, and they are determined partially by the grade of the tumours. The grade of the tumour is how quickly the cells are proliferating. We have grade 1, 2, and 3 tumours based on their KI67 index on histology. So the higher grade tumours may well be suitable for some form of systemic chemotherapy, whereas the lower-grade tumors are more suitable often for things like somatostatin analogs or radionuclide therapies, or sometimes for liver-targeted therapies like radiofrequency ablation or chemoembolization. But there's lots of possibilities, and many patients indeed have sequential treatments of that type to deal with both their symptoms and tumor burden. And so I'll come back to my uh, original statement in this uh, question that treatment should really be directed by a multidisciplinary team comprised of surgeons, gastroenterologists, endocrinologists, nuclear physicians, radiologists, oncologists, uh, all the people who may be able to offer certain treatment um, plans for these patients.
0: Briefly, we focus predominantly on GI nets, but what about pancreatic uh, neuroendocrine tumors? Is the approach to them any different?
1: Yes, it is a little bit, obviously, because we're not, we're not going to detect these endoscopically and we can't remove them endoscopically. They they often present with a um, a mass in the pancreas. They present to the HPB, MDT, and maybe following a biopsy or a resection, or they're found to have a neuroendocrine tumor. About half of uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are non-functional. They're not actually secreting hormones that cause one of these functional syndromes, but about half of them do. So they secrete gastrin as a gastrinoma or somatostatin, somatostatinoma, and these cause these famous endocrine uh, syndromes with various symptoms. So uh, I think it's important to evaluate whether a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor is functional or not. And the key to that is the fasting gut hormone profile. After that, the treatment is, I suppose, similar. So we need to evaluate the Tumor in terms of its grade and stage, and if it is resectable and the patient is fit enough for surgery, then they should proceed to a pancreatic resection, whether that be Whipple's or, or a distal pancreatectomy, depending on the site of tumor, with a view to cure. Again, the tumor may be metastatic or irresectable at diagnosis, and then there are. Um, treatment options. Many pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are of a higher grade than those which occur in the GI tract. And so chemotherapy is used much more commonly for pancreatic nets than for, say, small bowel neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, but there are also some other targeted therapies that have recently shown promising results in trials. So drugs such as severolimus and sunitinib, particularly in the non-functional pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, do show good effects. And so uh, an oncologist who's got expertise in the use of those drugs should certainly be involved in the treatment of patients with metastatic pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Final thing to say about them is, is the role of EUS. So, EUS and fine needle aspiration is very helpful often in determining the diagnosis of a pancreatic lesion, particularly a neuroendocrine tumor. And so, that should be considered if you're not clear as to whether a, a tumor in the pancreas is. a uh, an adenocarcinoma or potentially a neuroendocrine tumour. They they can have slightly different features on CT scan, um, but uh, an FNA and cytology can be very helpful and the gastroenterologist may be involved in doing that procedure. Thank you, uh, Professor.
0: And finally, what new advances in GI NETs are there on the horizon or do you see in the future? And, And also, If you could give our listeners a few key take-home messages, what would they be?
1: Uh, Well, I think there have been several advances in the management of neuroendocrine tumors recently. So the community, the research community, has got its head together and started to do some large-phase clinical trials in this area. So there have been the ProMid and the Clarinet studies recently looking at the effects of somatostatin analogues. And uh, clinicians involved in the care of patients with neuroendocrine tumors are now getting their act together to do these larger um, phase 2 and 3 clinical trials to give us the sort of data that we need to help manage patients. There are currently trials underway for radionuclide therapies. To date, these have been anecdotal reports or um, case series that have been published, but there's actually a, a clinical trial comparing radionuclide therapy and high-dose somatostatin analogs currently underway, and that will give interesting results, I'm sure. And there are lots of other trials, particularly involving um, chemotherapy and the new targeted agents also in um, progress in neuroendocrine tumors. So I think this is a positive time for management of neuroendocrine tumors. I think there's increasing awareness of them, increasing recognition of the role of endoscopy. I think that's important, but there have been lots of advances in treatment, and I think they will continue for the next few years. I'd like to leave you with three take-home messages, which I put on the last slide that I put in the Twitter debate, if you want to refer to them. but I think the first thing is to say is that you need to assess each patient individually and each tumor individually. So you need to know several things about a neuroendocrine tumor in order to manage it optimally. You obviously need to know its site and size, particularly if you're dealing with a primary tumor. But you really, if possible, need to know the grade of tumor, and that requires a biopsy. You need to know the stage of tumor. That may require a CT scan and some sort of functional imaging. And you also need to know whether it's secretory. Is it producing hormones and are they causing symptoms? And finally, you need to think, is there an underlying cause? Some of these tumours, for example, occur in patients with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. Um, Is there any evidence of that? Should other members of the family be screened? So detailed investigations are required on each patient to give you the information about the tumour that you need in order to be able to manage it optimally. The second point I want to make is that because management is not straightforward and these tumors are relatively rare, that the management should be by a multidisciplinary team of clinicians who can offer the various treatment options that are possible for these tumors. And that, in my opinion, it's mandatory that uh, patients with these tumors should be referred appropriately to your local MDT for advice on management. As I've said, and the third point in my summary is there are several treatment options available many of them are quite specialized and many patients will end up having sequential therapies with a number of different options over the course of many years the median survival of somebody with a metastatic small bowel neuroendocrine tumor is in the realm of 5 to 10 years and so during that time they may well have multiple forms of treatment uh, so Patients need to be managed by an MDT and followed up appropriately and considered for additional therapies if they have symptoms that are not controlled or evidence of tumour progression.
0: Thank you once again, Professor Pritcher, for your fantastic contribution and support with both the FG Twitter debate and this podcast. We are really grateful and thank you very much. The slides from the Twitter debate will be available to look at next link for this podcast. The next FG Twitter debate is our special Endo Live Twitter debate with Professor Brian Saunders, consultant gastroenterologist at St Mark's Hospital London and Andrew Professor of Endoscopy at Imperial College London on Tuesday, the 3rd of March 2015 at 8 till 9 pm GMT. And we'll discuss frontline endoscopy, polypectomy, tips, tricks, and which to remove endoscopically. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FGDebate.